We've been studying uh, through the book of Acts. If you've not, um, if this is your, your first time at Grace City in Portland this morning, just to quickly catch you up to speed, we've been studying through this very unique book in the New Testament. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are, um, to put it simply, just a, a biographical accounts of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and uh, the, the foretelling of his imminent return. These are the Gospels. Now, Acts is unique because the same person who, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Gospel according to Luke, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Uh, Luke was a medical physician. He was... Uh, arguably a renowned historian and an all-around extremely educated and competent individual. He penned, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he penned the book of Acts. We've been studying through the book of Acts for a couple of reasons. We say this every week just in way of reminder. Number one, it is an historical document. It is to be, uh, it is ancient history to be sure, um, but it's history and it's actually a part of our history. As, as Westerners, people alive, even yes, today, 2,000 years later in Portland, Oregon, the events that took place as recorded in the book of Acts have had an impact on the world we ourselves live in today. So from that point of view, we're looking at it just merely as a significant historical document. Perhaps more importantly, though, we're also looking at the book of Acts because it is the story of the church. It tells of the inception of the church, the church that Jesus himself started. That is, he gathered a small group of his followers, and he said, I'm going to do something through you to bring restoration to the entire world. What I started in this little tiny, tiny region of the world, specifically Judea, through you, I'm going to cause it to spread around the globe. And the church was birthed. Uh, the church was given the spirit of God or the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus himself said, before you get about the mission, before you go on outreach, before you attempt to tell anyone about who I am, what I've done, my victory over death, call this the resurrection. It's why we celebrate Easter. Before you go anywhere, wait in Jerusalem, and I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to give you power to be my witnesses, to tell the world, not just in words alone, but in a demonstration of of who I am, my love, and what it looks like to be to be a community built upon and centered around Jesus. And so it's a book about the church of Jesus. We are a part of that church. We're a young church. I was chatting with a gentleman uh, just a few minutes ago. He was coming into the building this morning. If you don't mind me sharing your story, Jeff. And he thought, oh, dang it, I've been in this building before. What am I doing back here? Uh, I love Door of Hope. Absolutely love the church. Fantastic church. If you get sick of me, I recommend checking them out. They're really, really good. They're over in the southeast. But we're not them. We're a new church that have just started in this building. But as we're starting out, as we're building something, this community, 
It is utterly essential that we're not making it up as we go. We're not trying to reinvent church according to our own liking or preferences. We are the church of Jesus. And so we're studying the book of Acts looking for precedence. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus, to be the community that is built upon and centered around Jesus Christ, the living king? This is the big question. This week, we're all the way up to Acts chapter 16. 16 out of 28 chapters. How about that? We'll be done by May. So if you brought a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 16. We'll be starting in uh, verse 16. And this is the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas... They've been traveling all over the ancient Near East. They've gotten into the Mediterranean. At this point in the story, they've actually made their way up to the very outer edges of the Roman Empire. And they're now in a little city. It's a Roman outpost called Philippi. And this is where the story picks up. Acts 16, starting in verse 16. As we, that's Paul, Silas, And interestingly, Luke, the historian, is now including himself in the third person. So he's joined the party. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, you have to appreciate the honesty. Not Paul moved by compassion for this poor girl. No, just simply Paul feeling extremely annoyed. (laughs) Turned and said to the spirit, not to the girl, to this spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Next slide. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates magistrates tore the garments off them, stripped them down, and gave orders to beat them with rods. It's a bit of mob justice. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pause there. Have you ever been in prison? You don't need to raise your hand. But raise the hands who's a convicted felon in the room. We won't won't go there. Have you ever been to prison? Have you ever visited someone in prison? I've done a couple times. Um, It's a very unnerving experience. I think I shared 
the experience of, uh, this was a big, big prison in London called Wormwood um, that I, I had a friend who got locked up for a few years. It's a white collar crime, actually. He was an accountant, ended up getting arrested in Germany for embezzlement, uh, deported, sent back to the UK and put in this big prison. I went to visit him. Um, of course, I had no fear of like getting stuck in this place, but just the process of going into this, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was actually maximum security, but it was, it was secure. Let's just put it that way. Big, tall, thick walls, barbed wire, um, the whole deal. I had another friend uh, who had been uh, arrested for hospitalizing a bouncer. Um, he had had a few too many beers, and it uh, just so happens that he was a black belt in some sort of martial arts, and, uh, and decided to bounce the bouncer out of the club. Um, he got locked up for that. The other time, the third time, I, uh, <laughs> I had actually, now this was a long time ago, don't judge me, but I had gotten a ticket for possession and a uh, long time ago. I was so terrified of what like, might actually happen uh, that I just thought the best way to deal with it would probably be to just ignore it. And like, I don't know, isn't there like some sort of law like after a certain number of years, it just sort of like disappears from your record? This was my thinking. Uh, if in case you're wondering, like, is that true? That's absolutely not true. I ended up getting a warrant for my arrest in the mail. So they, like, they knew where I was. <laughs> Eventually, my driver's license expired. And I thought, you know what? I, I really did not think this through. <laughs> I'm going to go into the DMV to get my license renewed. And they're going to see that I've got this, this thing out, this this warrant for my arrest. So I thought, you know what, I just, I've got to turn myself in. There's, there's no way around it. So I got in my car and I drove, I didn't know where to go or what to do, so I drove to this maximum security prison in Central California. <laughs> like a normal person would just go to the courthouse downtown. <laughs> but I had a warrant out for my arrest. So I was like, this, this, you know, this is big, this is deep. So I drive to this maximum security prison. I go underground, park my car. I had like packed a little overnight bag. I thought for sure I was gonna get locked up. I walk into this big prison, go past the guards, I show them my paperwork, and I go to this thick, bulletproof glass sort of counter. And there's this very sweet elderly woman in uniform behind the glass who looks at my paperwork and with like that grandmotherly sort of pity in her eyes, looked at me and shook her head, and she said, son, you are in the wrong place. I was like, thank God. <laughs> so I've been around prison. Probably nothing like that. Paul and Silas were locked up, feet in stocks, in the inner prison of a Roman outpost. Okay, this is like... This is the bad stuff. This is, this is like, I mean, you can imagine, you've seen the movies. This is like a dungeon-style prison. No electricity, disease, mud. I mean, you, you can imagine, right? This was the kind of prison we're talking about. 
I want us to think this morning about the subject of freedom. This is where the story is building up to. Freedom. What does it mean to be free in Jesus Christ? You know, freedom arguably is one of the, if not the greatest promise that the scriptures make to followers of Jesus. Freedom. In fact, uh, Paul, talking about Paul elsewhere, he's writing a letter to uh, one of the churches in Ephesus, and he describes the gospel as the message of deliverance. Amen. Amen. Deliverance. We're promised freedom as followers of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? What kind of freedom are we talking about? You know, I was actually at another prison. I forgot. A fourth time. This was when um, I was in Poland. And uh, I had an opportunity to do a tour of the Auschwitz death camp. Um, just outside of Krakow in Poland. Obviously, it's not an operational prison, but it's, it's a prison. It's a type of prison, nonetheless. Can we go to the next slide, please? Here's a picture um, of the entryway at Auschwitz, the death camp in Poland. Um, it was interesting. This particular trip, this was a Saturday. Sunday, I was going to be back in London. I had been asked to, uh, to give a talk on how can a God who's allegedly good and powerful, allows so much injustice and suffering in the world. This was the topic that I had been asked to speak on. This was my sermon prep on the Saturday before that Sunday. There was a, go to the next slide, please. There's a famous um, Nobel Peace, Peace Prize winner, the um, late Elie Wiesel. 1944, at the age of 15, him and his family were captured in Hungary and taken to Poland uh, to be imprisoned in the Auschwitz death camp. And this is what he said upon deliverance from his situation. I know, and I speak from experience, that even in the midst of darkness, it's possible to create light and share warmth with one another, that even on the edge of the abyss, it is possible to dream exalted dreams of compassion, that it is possible to be free and strengthen the ideals of freedom even within prison walls. This was behind the walls of the Auschwitz death camp. What kind of freedom are we talking about? There's lots of different kinds of freedom. And can I just say this? I think as Americans, as Westerners, as the individualists that we are, we demand freedom. It's not a perk. It's not a fringe benefit. It's core to who we are, and it's something that we utterly demand. And we'll pay for it with our lives, as we've done. Not us, thank God, unless you're a vet in the room. What is this freedom? Well, there's certainly, there is physical freedom. You can lose that freedom without too much effort. You can get locked up behind bars, and you can lose your freedom. 
if you abuse it. There's this political, there's social freedom. Freedom is to be what you want to be. That would be an example of like a social freedom. I am who I am. Do I have the freedom to talk, to think, to do what I want to do, to be who I am in the society that I live in? There's a lot of countries where that's not a reality. Thank God in our city, it is something that we're able to enjoy for the most part. Of course, if I want to be a predator, if I want to abuse the innocent and weak, my freedom will be revoked, hopefully. So there are limits to those freedoms. I can't merely do whatever I want or feel like doing, especially if I have a depraved mind, if I'm an evil citizen. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he said the gospel is the message of deliverance from an evil age. There is an evil that we're to be set free from. Sometimes that evil is the stuff that's right here within or here. There's uh, financial freedom. This is probably our favorite. This is the one we all really aspire towards, to become financially independent. Not a bad freedom to aspire towards, right? Emotional freedom. Mental freedom. Relational freedom. I met a guy uh, last Saturday, in fact. A few of us were walking around the neighborhood. We were knocking on doors, inviting people to our Easter service, um, doing outreach, as we say. And uh, who, was, who was I with? I was with Lily and someone else, and we just bumped into a guy that happened to be walking towards us down the sidewalk. We made eye contact. We stopped for a moment, struck up a conversation, gave him a flyer. He refused it. And, uh, you know, he asked what we were doing. So we're this church, you know, the, the one with the red doors, 9th and Fremont. And we began a conversation. And, uh, you know, I asked some of the basic questions. Somehow, his mom came up in the conversation. He said something about where he was born and, and his family uh, background and that kind of thing. And, but he referred to his mom as the woman who gave birth to him. It was kind of a weird way to refer to your mom. And I asked him, I said, oh, is we, like, are you talking, why do you say it that way? And he said, oh, well, look, I, you know, it's my mom, but I don't like calling her that because I, I don't want anything to do with her. She's never done anything good for me in my life. So I referred to her as the woman who, uh, who gave birth to me. And I said, oh, okay, I get it. So your mom wasn't, wasn't a decent person. And so, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I love her. She's my mom. And it was weird. In a little moment, I could tell there was something very deep and painful sort of triggered on the inside of this guy. And I'm not trying to judge his situation. I'm just simply saying there is a type of bondage that I think transcends, that goes beyond just simply getting locked up behind bars. Like you can be behind a thick wall and still experience a type of freedom. You can be dirt broke and got nothing, be on SSI or whatever, and you can still be free. 
perhaps even have uh, mental, emotional uh, challenges, difficulties. Freedom can still be had. Relational freedom, the kind of bondage that we can sometimes experience when we've been hurt or betrayed by someone who we loved, that's another kind of bondage. That's a prison cell for the soul, especially if it involves someone who should have been there, your mom, your dad, especially if it's someone who not only should have been there, but who exploited the relationship they had with you to perhaps abuse you. Worst case scenario as a child. And I'm not trying to create some sort of little emotional thing here. This is what we're talking about. There is a bondage that we see, that we experience in our own ways, different people all the time. And yet Jesus says, I've come to set you free. There's usually a way to get out of jail. There's usually a way to get your cash flow situation sorted. Usually. Somehow. Especially in this country. But there's a type of freedom that Jesus offers us that transcends even all of that. He wants to set us free on a soul level. Luke chapter 8. I referred to the gospel of Luke a moment ago. There was a demon-possessed man. Uh, he, it says that he was a man in the countryside of the Gerasenes. It's just a little region opposite the, uh, Galilee, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples decided to get in a boat, cross over to the sea, where they met this demon-possessed man. Um, I stood on the shore of Galilee, looking across this lake, giant lake, the sea, really. And you could barely see the other side, this region that Luke is describing in Luke chapter 8. And I was told, in just the right conditions, if you were to stand on the other side of this sea and start screaming, you would be able to hear the person on the other side. There's like some cliffs on the other side, and it creates this echo chamber. It's interesting. So whatever reason, maybe Jesus heard the howling of this demon-oppressed man. Perhaps he just felt some kind of unction in his heart. But he got his disciples and he said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And they cross over the Sea of Galilee and they're met by this demon-possessed man. And it said that although he had been bound with chains and shackles, he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. You know, there's a kind of, of bondage that goes beyond just chains and shackles. You know, most of us, I think we have such incredibly powerful wills that there's very little on the planet that can keep us in bondage other than the stuff that happens deep inside here. This guy, he was obviously, he had, he had mental problems. He was demon-possessed. He had, he had problems, serious problems. And the townsfolk, of course this is just wrong, but the townsfolk decided the way they would deal with this guy is just to lock him up, 
said they chained him up and confined him like in, in the tombs. But he kept breaking the chains. Is it possible that there's some of you in this room where you think, look at nothing could ever, ever keep me down. Nothing in this life, nothing in this world, not even chains. Looking at some of you guys, even some of you girls, you clearly work out. And there's something about the human will that emboldens us to even break out of physical bonds. But this demon-possessed man, he was still in bondage. There was something going on inside. And when he saw Jesus, he came running to him and he fell down at his feet. And the demons that were residing within him cried out, don't torture us. And with a word, Jesus said, come out. And the man was set free. The man was delivered. The man experienced a peace that nothing else up until that point had given him what he was seeking, what he desired. How are you guys doing with that? And just think with me for a second. What part of your life do you need greater freedom in? For some of you, it might actually be something physical. It could, it could be like, look, at I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in bondage to my own body. That's a thing, actually. Next Sunday, I'm going to say a word or two about the resurrection Paul himself, later on in the book of Romans, he cries out, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you haven't noticed, okay, I'm 41, so you may not be there yet, but eventually you will realize you have a revelation that your body is on its way out. You 20-somethings in here, enjoy, enjoy the glory days. Eventually, you will, you will have the revelation that you are in bondage to your own body. And Jesus offers freedom for that as well. You might think, I got no money. I got no money. I'm in bondage to my bank account. That could be a real thing for you. Student loans, anyone? Amen or oh my. <laughs> little financial bondage to go around? How about the relationship stuff? How about the relationship stuff? Oh, that's the deep stuff right there. When you've been hurt, when you've been intimate, when you've made yourself vulnerable, when you've trusted, and perhaps you were betrayed, or perhaps the person that you entrusted your heart to simply went away. Maybe they lost their life. How's your soul doing with that? Jesus wants to set us free. Let's read on. Freedom. Verse 25. In the innermost part of the prison, feet in stocks, 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. He would have been executed anyways. At that moment, he's probably thinking about his own, he's probably thinking about his whole family, that these prisoners escaped. Uh, The Roman powers to be would have taken his life and probably his family's as well as a means of, of punishment. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But, verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, torches, and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Stop there. What a question. What a question. What a moment. What irony. Okay, the jailer, who up until this point probably thought, man, these pathetic people, they've been arrested. They've been locked up. They're suffering. They're probably going to die. And then in a moment, something happens, and the jailer realizes Who's really in prison here? Who's really in bondage? These men, they're singing, they're praying, they're worshiping God in a dark, cold dungeon. The earth shakes, the shackles come apart, the doors fly open. What do they do? Nothing. How weird is that? They're worshiping God. The prison doors fly open. What do they do? Do they run? Do they get out? Even the prisoners who are listening to them sing and pray. Apparently something kind of went viral in the dungeon. And the prisoners realized they weren't imprisoned. They weren't the ones in bondage. It was the jailer who was stuck. It was the jailer who wasn't free. And so he cries out to them, I need what you've got. What can I do to experience this freedom that absolutely makes zero sense? Have you ever experienced this? You know, sometimes in life, we're, we're, all, we're all really quite arrogant. Can I just say that? Amen. It's just true. I remember one time I was meeting with a pastor and, uh, and we had this meeting and, and she, it was, it was a female pastor. She asked me this question at the end of our meeting, kind of as I was getting ready to leave. She said, Simon, let me ask you a question, very important question, important that you know the answer. She said, the question is simply this, if the devil was going to attack you, somehow take you out, whatever, whatever that means, what would be the devil's weapon of choice against you, Simon. And I didn't even hesitate. I knew it. I'm like, oh, easy. 
lust. That would be the one. Before I, I, I gave my life to Jesus and began following him, that was, my, that was my sin of choice, as it were. That would be the one. And just as quickly as I responded, she responded back. She said, nope, mm-mm, nope, that's not it. I'm like, okay, well, do tell. <laughs> she said, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. Believe me, pride. Now, in the moment, I was thinking to myself, like, pride? Like, I'm not pride. You have pride. <laughs> of course, you're kind of stuck in that moment because you can't deny having pride because that's exactly what a prideful person would do. So I just kind of had to, had to take my lumps. I'm like, mm, yeah, sure, thank you, pastor. Pride. That was at least 15 years ago, and she was dead right dead right. Pride. You know, sometimes we don't realize how in bondage we are until we finally meet someone who's really living a life of freedom. And you think, look, I'm all right. I'm good. I got it together. No problem. I don't have addictions. I'm not struggling with money. Sure, I've had my heart broken a few times, but who hasn't? I'm good. Hmm. As until you've met someone who's truly living free in this world, you might not ever fully realize just how enslaved you are. This is what's happening here in this story the jailer, the one with the keys to the prison cell, to the dungeon, he realizes in a moment, these men, they're free. You've probably heard, if you've been around church for a little while, you've probably heard this preached before. How do you experience freedom? You worship God. You worship to, you know, until you are free. No offense to whoever... May have pre- I may have preached that message for, as far as I can remember. Um, I think it's slightly bad theology. In fact, I, I would, I'm convinced that that's just really poor theology. Paul and Silas were not worshiping as some sort of like spiritual means to like a, a supernatural prison break. Okay. In fact, if you read on, you'll, you'll discover that the next day, Paul's like, oh, <clears throat> by the way, I'm actually a Roman citizen. Yeah, I got a green card. And all of a sudden, the, the magistrates were like, whoa, 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 sorry, so sorry. Like, don't, you know, and they, they, they quickly want to get rid of Paul and his friend Silas. They didn't even have to be locked up. They could have whipped out the green card like when the mob was forming. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I am a Roman citizen. You cannot imprison me without due process. And when the prison doors finally flew open, they didn't run for it. They weren't worshiping in hopes that God would somehow like break open the prison doors so that they could make a run for it. They clearly had no interest in running away. They weren't worshiping to get set free. They were worshiping because they were. They were worshiping their God because in the middle of that dark, dingy prison cell 
They knew who they were. They knew their God. And they were worshiping and praying as free men. As free men in that prison cell. What must I do to be saved? How can we experience this kind of life? That's the question that the jailer's asking. How can I experience what you guys have? I'm about to lose my job. I'm about to kill myself. I need what you've got. The joy, the peace, this mind-boggling contentment. You know, Paul writes a letter to the Philippians. Later on, a church is birthed out of this moment. There's actually another lady named Lydia who gets saved by the riverside. Next is the Philippian jailer, his entire household. Others are added, and a church is birthed in Philippi. And Paul writes a letter entitled Philippians. Let me read this to you uh, from his letter to the church in Philippi. Chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verse thir- or 11, he says, For I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of, placing plen- of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. Amen. You know, the world needs Christians who have learned how to suffer well. Not only did the jailer realize something uh, life-changing about who he was and his inner situation, but the prisoners, Paul and Silas's fellow inmates, they stayed as well. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking like if I was there, I would have been like, dude, I'm out. Like prison doors open, praise Yahweh, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, no, they stayed. Why? Because Paul and Silas were free men in the middle of a prison cell. Guys, if you're suffering right now, God wants to set you free, but maybe not in the way you're hoping for. It could be that someone looking on needs to see what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to worship the king in the midst of their suffering. And your question is, how can I be saved? I.e., how can I get the heck out of this situation? This blows. Like, I really, really want to get out of this pain. And Jesus wants to say to you this morning, I want to set you free, but you have to understand you're not alone in the dungeon. You're not alone. There's people around you. Thank you, Hannah. There's people around you that are, that are suffering alongside of you. They need to see. They need to hear. They need to look on and experience, get up close to what it looks like for a person to be locked up to be riddled with pain, to experience sorrow, and yet still experience freedom. People need to see that. 
You know what Christian freedom really, really boils down to? It's a matter of identity. There's circumstantial freedom, money, society, prison, etc., etc. We talked about these things. But then there's a deeper freedom that we long for. A freedom that transcends circumstantial factors. And it has to do with who you are. As long as your identity is bound to the circumstances in life in this world, it'll be like being enslaved to a tyrant. An identity that demands to be fed day after day after day after day after day. Perhaps your identity is wrapped up in what other people think about you, how you look, how much money you have, what he or she said, what your mom didn't give you, what your dad gave you and shouldn't have. Jesus wants to give you a new identity. One that says because of who he is and what he's already done, You're free. You're accepted. That is, you're forgiven. Your shame has been washed away. It's been removed. The sins committed against you have been dealt with. Your own stupidity, your own self-centeredness, you have been forgiven because Jesus suffered for your sins. You're accepted. You're secure. There's a love that Jesus offers you that can never, ever, ever, ever be taken away. There's nothing in heaven or in hell that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's an identity that's whole. And whether you get locked up, whether you get knocked down, whether you're rich, poor, hated or loved in this world, Jesus offers every one of us a freedom that transcends that, all of that. What must you do to be saved? The answer to the question is believe. Go to the next slide, please. Oh, you know what that means? Go back one. You know what that means? Arbeit macht frei. Anyone speak German? What does that say? Work makes you free. What a lie. What an appropriate lie to put over a Nazi death camp. Work harder. You want to be free? Earn it. What a lie. That is the epitome of bondage. Pray harder. Give more, attend better, be more religious, feel more sorry. It's bondage. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus says, I've already done the work. I've paid the price. I've suffered for you. Not so that you'll never feel pain in this life. To the contrary, in this life, we will have trouble. It's just called part of being human, whether you're religious or not. It's the human experience. 
And Jesus says, I've come to set you free. I've come to make you whole. I've come that you might be adopted into the family of God so that you can know you're accepted, you're loved, you're more significant than you could possibly ever imagine. Don't work harder. Trust God. Lean all your weight on Jesus. Collapse at his feet. Let him pick you up. Is it a crutch? Absolutely it's a crutch. Without it, you go nowhere. You're dead on the floor. We all need help. 